Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club podcast. Today I'm here with Jamie McLaughlin. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us today. The pleasure to be here, Brian. Absolutely. So Jamie is a management consultant focused on firms who serve the ultra high net worth and family office client segments. Previously, he was the CEO of Geller Family Office Services, a partner at Convergent Wealth Advisors, where he built the firm's New York office, the regional president of Mellon Private Wealth Management's New York region, and a financial advisor at Sanford Bernstein and Company, where he started in the wealth management industry. And just an incredible resource we were talking before we went live. You spoke at a family office conference that I attended many, many years ago through IPI. And I've been following you since and your commentary on the overall market. So I'm excited for this one. Thank you for joining us. Uh, really great, Brad. Thanks for reaching out tonight. So let's get definitional here before we talk about industry trends. Could you maybe provide what you think segmentation-wise qualifies folks to be ultra high net worth, family office, um, just high net worth affluent? Should you maybe give us some some structure around those definitions? And I'd love to hear a commentary on maybe how those numbers have changed yeah. throughout your career. Well, and that's really great. I actually just to go way back in in my own career, the notion of even talking about a family office per se really wasn't in a lexicon when I started there. There were families that had the family offices, the Rockefellers and so on, but this was not in any way uh, at the rate of family office design and uh, uh, structuring, nothing like it is today. And I'll just say that the concentration of wealth, uh, Again, I'm not making a political statement. It is, it is a fact. We have much greater wealth. We have many more households that have great wealth. But let me put some definitions out there for the audience. The mass affluent uh, is an important uh, segment. Uh, some people say it's at the one in 
$2 million and less level of liquid net worth. And in all of these, I'm going to be speaking about liquid net worth as opposed to their balance sheet wealth, Brian. Above that is a high net worth category. Contemplating that would be somewhere at the two or three level. And I, I take the high net worth up to the 15 or $20 million level, maybe 25 million. But at some point about that stage, 25 or $30 million, and there seems to be, by the way, some of the research analysts in the area, they've sort of set down $30 million, just the level of ultra high net worth. Seems arbitrary, but perhaps it's embedded in the notion that they're is greater complexity, which is clear. It's not entirely correlated, but it's highly correlated. The complexity of the family structure, the household within the family structure and the needs for planning uh, and the opportunities for uh, accepting illiquidity for excess returns on the investment side all come together to create a complete different menu of needs and uh, providers. I'm gonna offer one more. Uh, that I use, I now am using it regularly. I, and I'm, I'm not making it up, but it's my term. I don't think it's in the literature if there is such a thing. But I have a category that I call the super wealthy that I'm now using regularly. And that is a group that starts in my own line in the sand is 100 million or more. The difference between a family with 25 million and 100 million is significant. The significance, Brian, is only in the nature of that Families with $100 million or more, that is liquid net worth. So imagine the balance sheet is often higher. Not that they can change the world, but their ability to have real impact in their legacy planning and what they can do uh, charitably or in legacy planning is really significant. And that group uh, is still, it's a rarefied group, that group too is growing. All of those households have grown. So I, I'm not going to put a line in the sand where the family offices start their family offices with $50 million of liquid net worth, but it certainly doesn't make any economic sense. I can assure you of that. But the number I use for the family office category, if there is such a segment, is really now about a billion dollars or more. It could be lower than that. Again, liquid net worth against which there would be a staff model built to serve that that in fact would be equivalent to or about the same as the commercial providers. Otherwise you get down into the hundred or $200 million family office and they're, they're paying high single digits of percentages of their liquid net worth to get the services provided. But those are, those are the, those are the categories. And just incredible how precipitous that growth has been in AUM of what would justify a family office in today's marketplace versus. 15, 20 years ago, when I learned about this business, it's, it's just been incredible. Ryan, let me add, let me add some data though, because I, I think just sure. underscores your point. It, it is unbelievable. So we know about what's happened. We, we know what has happened with the capital markets since 2010. So, or I guess it was March of 2009, which was the bottom. We know what's happened with all the capital markets across the spectrum, fixed income and equity markets, all plural. And yet, it's the nature of the concentration of wealth that has expanded that's extraordinary. Now, this is Boston Consulting Group data. Uh, they benchmark some kind of funny categories. Uh, there was the high net worth category that they described as, I think it was below 5 million. Then they had a 5 to 20 million. 
then they had a 20 to 100, and then they had a 100 million plus. So all growth in households, this is the total number of households in those categories, they were all growing at around five or 6%, which is extraordinary. That's an extra, and that's a compound annual growth rate, five-year caper. The group in the 20 to $100 million category was growing at 9.6% compound annual growth rate. Above 100, 6.7. But that 20 to 100, it's an extraordinary rate of growth. What does that mean? That means that typically, sure, there's plenty of W2 people that are reaching executive management in our part of that, but they're a small percentage. It means that family-held enterprises are changing hands or doing some capital transition, some uh, partial minority control or some capital transition. 9.6% is incredible. That means approximately every seven years, you're going to double the number if you stayed at that rate. That's extraordinary. And so uh, someone would say, well, we don't have a concentration of wealth going on or the 1% crowd could get into that. Now, we're not talking about the 1%. We're talking just below that. That concentration of wealth in North America, which is the BCG data, is truly unprecedented. I'm not sure we'll ever see it again. And this dovetails exactly to the next point of conversation I wanted to have with you, which is this intersection of, of family office, multifamily office, the marketplace, the business of working with these different groups and private equity. You referenced Rockefeller, largely considered the first true family office in America. They have now rolled out this aggregation multifamily office uh, platform, and they've grown uh, tremendously over the last few years. What are you seeing within that RIA multifamily office space, just kind of large trend market commentary over the last, call it five or 10 years? Wonderful question, Brian. I, first of all, for the audience's purposes, and I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not being a, a nudge here or a wordsmith, there is not embedded in statute or regulation the term multifamily office. It doesn't exist. It is a creation of the market. It has been used by many firms as a marketing tagline. I'm not saying it's wrong. But let's make sure we define what that is. First, there are some single family offices that have chosen to take on, on a very private level, I call them closed, uh, take on other families that are on a shared services basis, maybe even just co-diligencing or co-investing on the investment side or sharing some accounting and bookkeeping staff and so on. Some ways that's a multifamily office for sure. But what we're really talking about in the question you raised are what I call commercial multifamily offices. They may never have had a first family. They were created to serve higher, larger, more complex families. I think that's what you're talking about. And I don't want to cost, cast any aspersions at anyone or firm that aspires to serve that client. But many firms have one or a handful of clients that are in that category and therefore want to be in a position and they all often covet those largest clients. I think it's a fool's errand. There, this is where I live in the hundreds of firms that I've spoken to or seen or worked under NDAs. 
it is hard to make money to serve those clients, essentially because of capacity utilization being uneven. Meaning that means you have embedded costs for staff expense on your P&L, and those people are not fully carrying a full load of revenue. Therefore, they're, they're expensive. They're already expensive, but they're even more expensive because they're not fully loaded. So it's an expensive place to serve. And therefore, you've got to be very disciplined and, dis and disciplined and pricing, disciplined in what the service model will be. But back to the question of the rise of this category. It's certainly happening. I call it the category. I call it a category I need uh, of 40 or 50 firms. And that's it. Maybe there's a couple hundred at the outside that have a significant number of complex clients or defined differently that they have an average client that's large, let's say 50 plus million dollars. The category is around 40 or 50. On the outside, I could expand it to maybe 200. So it's not a big category. And yet I believe they are having great success. I could riddle off names very quickly. I don't want to play any favorites. You mentioned Rockefeller Capital Quarters, which is a creation of the former Rockefeller family office. Uh, that would be one that would be included. But there are many others. And I believe that come of age, they don't enjoy a brand such as a Merrill Lynch, private banking and investment group, a Morgan Stanley. Uh, UBS has its own family office uh, uh, group, family office services group. Uh, they don't enjoy a brand like those firms, uh, but they've emerged. They've grown significantly. They had great growth. Really importantly, their growth has come because their clients have validated their decision to hire them and they've introduced them at a zero cost of acquisition to new friends and family. And the notion of this category is particularly important to me uh, that they're getting into the range of 20, 25, 30 billion dollars of assets under advisement or more now for the regulatory term AUM. And they've come of age. I don't believe they're going to be enjoying what I would call brand like Mural, but discerning families of new and great wealth are finding them. And as an alternative to what might be the brand, they are choosing now to run RFIs and RFPs, and they're finding these firms in greater numbers. So there've been a lot of RIA enthusiasts that have been championing the RAA and growth of the RAA. I'm not talking about that. That, that might be going on. Uh, I also want to say as a footnote that I don't believe it's happening at the expense of the brokerage firms. I think that's a canard. I think that brokerage firms are growing extremely well. I don't believe they wear black hats. I believe their advisors have different behavior motivations. I believe their models are different. And yet I believe that they operate in a way that does often serve the families well. The point I'm making is there's a group of RAs, a subset of the RAs. They've really carved out a new place for themselves and they're coming of age and they're growing extremely well. Uh, we can get into other measures of how successful they are, including their growth of enterprise value, meaning their, their currency, their liquid note, their, the, the worth of the entity. They're growing in that regard as well. So there's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a neat time for the commercial, as you call them, multifamily office. How do you contrast this small group of firms achieving 
what you would you describe as tremendous growth and exciting times with a larger trend that we've seen of, of private equity backed aggregation and roll up models. It seems to me problematic to have such a high touch culture oriented business try to achieve scale and efficiencies with some kind of end term liquidity tied to it. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense given kind of what the industry is is meant to do. Are are you how are you seeing that dynamic play out in the that's marketplace a today? That's a great area. I, I wrote a blog on people could probably put it into their browser called the capital paradox. So let me just describe that and then answer your question directly. The capital paradox thesis was that the RAAs broadly, secondarily the trust companies, which is a smaller total group, that they were always out championing their independence. It was almost a, a sine qua non. You go to their websites and they would say, we're independent, we're a boutique. You know the language that they would use as if that was something that was differentiated and was better. But the reality for me as a management consultant and looking at the financial efficacy of these firms was that they had no treasury account. They had no capital. All they had was free cash flow. Almost all of them are organized as partnerships and LLCs. And so the, you know, the income was distributed every year. There was no, there was no capital. And to do something strategically. And by the way, what do we, what am I, what do I mean by strategic? To buy another firm, a merge with another firm in another region? But really, strategically, it would be to add to your staff to really drive the service model differently. Staff expense ranges from 65 to 80% of the, of the P&L for most of these firms. But to really drive strategy, you need people. And to get those people, they're typically expensive. And so the notion of the, uh, of the RIA really having true strategy relies on capital. They don't have any. And so the question I think you're raising is, is there an alignment of interest between various capital sponsors and the RAA broadly, or the IRA that serves the alternative worth? Uh, is there an alignment of interest that would allow them to say that they're truly able to grow and be strategic while maintaining their so-called boutique or independent nature? Well, probably not if they want to be purist. But I don't have a problem with capital coming into this industry. I have no problem at all. At all. I, have a, I have a trust that those firms will be discerning of what capital partner. But to your point, Brian, there's no question in a, private, a traditional private equity fund of portfolio companies where the rotation of the capital is going to occur within the business cycle or five to eight years, that there's not an alignment of interest if the capital sponsor is a buyer and then soon a seller. That can't be, that can be disrupted. Uh, a new master, a new sheriff has to come into town. So I'm not in favor of short-dated capital. Let's make that clear. But there's many forms of capital. There are many folk firms, I wouldn't call them permanent capital, but are long-term Berkshire Hathaway-type investors. There's minority capital, which I love, which allows a firm to have access to some uh, liquidity, some cash. Pathstone, for instance, uh, has a deal with Level Minnick. I like that deal. They've been able to do some really great deals because of, not only because Level Minnick gives them a corporate development team, 
and helps them on the deal-making side, but also gives them the cash to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. Of course, can Pathstone now champion that they're truly independent? Maybe not, but maybe independence is a relative term. So there's various forms of capital in summary, some of which I like. I do not like short-dated capital. So in that regard, I think there's a misalignment with, by the way, the misalignment may be working for the investors, the capital, but it's not aligned with the employees or clients. I really like the fact pattern that you mentioned earlier with the Rockefellers, the smaller group where initially started as one family office and then they invite their friends and that makes sense to have a discrete clientele roster of other like-minded individuals. And that's the type of capital I think that will work well for this industry. The traditional you know, 10-year term is problematic in my opinion. I think you did an incredible job explaining that. What do you see in terms of, of trends and then moving forward, you know, do you think this consolidation will continue? It seems like within the millennial generation, especially, which I barely qualified for, but I do, there's more of a distrust of the traditional wirehouses. A lot of those financial advisors are getting older and not younger. It's moving the other direction. What are you seeing in terms of, do you think there'll be more aggregation and consolidation or will other families, as they get larger, just decide to have true, proper single family offices on their own? Well, there are two parts of that, Brian. Let me separate the question first. I think just broadly on, on the issue of, you refer to it as aggregation or consolidation, and they're a little different. I think it has to continue. I'll be 69 in a month. Uh, there are many, many people that are my age that are principals of firms, founding principals of firms that are still very active in their careers. Uh, they built businesses. Uh, they love the business. They've enjoyed the benefit of the market cycle and then the unique nature of what has happened in terms of the uh, multiple, the trading value, enterprise value of their firms over the last uh, seven or eight years. Uh, the reality is that uh, there are aging principles uh, that demographically correlate to the sort of the baby boom generation. And I believe that demographically, I'm not a demographer, but I believe that will continue. It will continue indefinitely, but it certainly will continue. I don't think the cycle is over. The question, though, is that uh, we, again, I'm not a capital markets guy, but, you know, interest rates have risen. Debt is more expensive. Debt is sometimes a means of the financing structure in some of these deals. Debt may be, in fact, used by the uh, firm, uh, not in the deal itself, but in their capital structure. So debt's more expensive. I think that takes a little tail off the, the aggressive uh, nature of where multiples were headed. Uh, so I think the market may attenuate, meaning, meaning it may level out. But I don't think there's any reason that we'll see less deal making. Uh, there are just too many more firms that are coming of age. I think the real thing that we've seen is that there's an awareness that the cycle might be changing. And younger principals, thankfully, are considering their own transition. In the category I mentioned before of what we refer to as commercial multifamily offices, in most of those firms and their wisdom, they have been, I'm using a term, I'm making this word up. They've been equitizing a broader group of their employees. 
and they've done internal transition for a couple of reasons. One, because people are getting more senior and earning, but because they believe that will actually maintain their independence. Again, their ability to do that only happens when they start doing that at a younger age. As they get older, it's hard to do an internal capital transition. Uh, that's just too expensive for other partners to be able to, uh, to be able to buy or recycle the equity of the founding partners. But that certainly has happened as well. So I think it's actually a time where multiples may come down a little bit because multiples will track against, I think, the, the multiples against many other firms and many other industry groups. But in this particular vertical, the what I'll call the RIA land, it's driven, I think, mostly by supply and demand. They're just more sellers than there are buyers. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Take the next step by joining the Capital Club, an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals organized by Excelsior Capital. You'll gain access to exclusive alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, private events, and more. Visit excelsiorgp.com slash Capital Club Podcast for more information and to sign up today. I agree. And clearly at a crossroads, there's there's a lot happening within this space. I want to pivot towards the client side. If you are in the market, either through RFP or just through social connections, interviewing folks, what are the right questions to ask as a potential client when you're interfacing with leadership at either, it could be a multifamily office, it could be an RIA, it could be a, a trust company, you know, what are the right questions to ask when you're at the table with these folks? In terms of finding a firm to serve from? Well, Correct. you know, it's, it's really a wonderful area. I wrote a, uh, I led and edited a five-part article on the skinny on U.S. ultra high net worth wealth management models. And I would commend the audience if they want to look at it. I'm the founder of something called the Ultra High Net Worth Institute. It's, it's on their website. You can pick it up in your browser. Uh, but it's an attempt to be agnostic, you know, not to be an enthusiast or champion of any one of the models. But let's make sure we're talking about what that, that ultra high net worth investor is looking at. Uh, they know about the brokerage firms because they're household names. And there is a person from a Merrill Lynch, probably in their part of the world. Uh, they know that person. They may know them individually or know people in that team. But I focused on four of what I call the regulatory types. The commercial bank that may have a division, may have a trust division, may have a wealth management division, may have an asset management division. So the commercial banks, uh, the trust companies, the independent trust companies, as distinct, by the way, from the commercial bank trust division, the standalone independent trust company, many of which are also closely held private. And then the last, the RIA. And there are real differences. What's fascinating if you look at the history, and I have a PowerPoint version of that as well, where I outline the history, uh, how we got here. And the history does dictate some changes. The trust company and the RIA largely are focused uh, on operating as fiduciaries. Uh, but the RIA is actually an 
accident of history. I don't think it was contemplated in the 40 Act, the Investment Advisory Act of 1940. I think anybody really thought the RIA would come about and the RIA happened. Uh, and I'm not suggesting it's an accident, but it was not contemplated that they would, in fact, under legislation that was largely focused on mutual funds, development of mutual funds, and the financial planner as a separate individual advisor, that there would be this investment advisor who would do planning as well, that would create this mushroom effect of the creation of the RIA. But culturally, many RIAs are they're almost militant fiduciaries. They are in some ways, uh, forgive me for saying this, sanctimonious about their independence. And it's as if sales is a bad word, as an example. Oh, we don't sell. Well, I'm sorry, you have to grow acquiring new clients as a condition of being in business for lots of reasons. Um, the commercial bank, uh, is a different culture. The commercial bank is part of a sort of a group of other services, including credit, which is very important to high net worth people and other divisions of lending that really mean that they're in what I think is largely the product uh, business and the delivery of products. They use the term products in banks. Uh, and then last, the brokerage firm, uh, which is in a position uh, as well as the bank to be uh, part of what I call a manufacturing and distribution process. Let me step back for a second. So I've described the four, uh, the commercial bank, the trust company, the IRA, and the, the brokerage firm. I think the way to really separate them, I mentioned culture, the way to look at them and help sort of the investor make decisions is the bank and the commercial bank and the brokerage firm, notwithstanding their revenue models, their revenue models may still be, a th being, by the way, brokerage firms largely moved off commissions. They're, they're working on almost all, certainly in the ultra high net worth space, they're working on a fee for service. So while they've moved away from that, the reality is the brokerage firms and commercial banks are still in the business of manufacturing and distributing crop. That is their model. In the case of the brokerage firm, there is something called a production grid, a production credit grid, whatever you want to call it, to the degree that you sell certain products, it gets on the grid, you get paid some portion of the uh, annualized revenue that's projected to come from that. And uh, it can be very, very handsome compensation. Very differently would be the trust company and the RIA who work in a fundamental difference. It's, it's chewing that they would be selling a product and would champion the fact that they are your, your in alignment of interest, your fiduciary in finding a manager of managers, finding the best manager, finding the best outside advisory firm and so on. And I believe that there is in this sort of departure now, this is where demand is shifting. And I believe it's where discerning investors are going to be continuing to make more and more decisions. I believe demand favors counseling. Now, if you can provide that in the commercial bank or brokerage model, you will be rewarded. But implicitly, the trust company and RIA is designed to be in the counseling business. I believe demand favors counseling, and I believe clients that are looking for solutions 
are more discerning of how advice is being provided. And so I'm not a, I'm not a champion of the RAI, but I believe they're best positioned. What are the common characteristics or consistent fact patterns that you see across leadership teams that do a really good job, that are doing this the right way and delivering the expectations on the expectations of this affluent population? I'd say there's three things, Brian. One is in their capital structure, their ownership. Two, would be in their service model. And three, their pricing. So let's go through those. The great firms are creating broad-based equity participation, the eligibility to be an owner. It doesn't happen in every firm at an early age, but it is an opportunity to share in the wealth, the wealth meaning that there is an underlying uh, creation of some terminal wealth and the enterprise value of the firm and they're sharing the equity. They're doing that essentially because by sharing it, the new participants are accretive. So they're being diluted. They're awarding or given eligibility for others to participate. Those people that are eligible presumptively are accretive. So the pie gets bigger, the slices get thinner. I think that capital structure process takes wisdom. Uh, and I'm not suggesting people are necessarily greedy, but it takes the ability for the owner founder to recognize for the firm to be sustainable, for the firm to survive after they are no longer around or in the operating role they need to share in that equity. It's not a natural act for every firm. Great firms and their leaders are sharing equity. Two, the service model is wicked hard to prosecute. It's unbelievable what the idiosyncratic needs of clients are in the ultra high net worth. And as I said before, capacity utilization is a killer for margin. If you've got a highly compensated person that does something specific, a specialty on your staff, and they're not carrying a full load, they're expensive. But you need to do that. You need to serve that person. And so the service model the best practice and the great leaders are looking at that service model, which implies staff to support the service promise. And they're looking at it with great care to where they add to staff. And the leader of the great firm is making decisions as to whether they're going to embed that cost on their PL or for some per period of time, perhaps temporarily, they're going to outsource it to an adjacent partner. So this core versus adjacent decision, uh, great leaders are making decisions about. And I often talk to my clients, they don't lose the primacy they have with a client when they choose to do their due diligence and send them to a great adjacent partner. They actually enhance their relationship with their client because of giving them the best advice. It may not be their advice, it may be a partner of their choosing. So that decision of core versus adjacent really is a huge driver in better serving the client. And I'll also said, because they're finding adjacent partners and not embedding the cost, it helps them keep their margins. Margins are very, margins are in the mid twenties for great performing firms that serve on the ultra high net worth. Those that are growing really well, 
might be above 30, but there's only a few of those. So it's just harder to make money in that category. The third point was pricing. Uh, I've done a lot of work in this area, moderating panels, written about the topic. There's an article, two-part article in the financial plan. Put that in your browser. It talks about how the pricing has to change. And I think there will be some pricing patterns that will change. I'll get to that in a minute. But the key for great firms is pricing discipline. You can't. And there's some data out there. There's some good data out there that, say, that says our realization rates in RIA land are not very good. My guess is that there's 10 to 15% of the published rates uh, that are left on the table. Where does that go? It usually goes as a concession because the firm wants to win that family and offers a discount. But there's a more insidious piece from it where the relationship pricing is used and firms are using that for multiple households that are in multiple states with multiple demands, with different IPSs, and just a whole host of different needs, it doesn't make any sense to have a relationship price. Uh, it, you know, you really lose money on that. So pricing discipline is critical. And the last piece on pricing discipline, and by the way, I believe if you're great, people will pay. If you don't believe you're great and you lower your fees, then maybe you're not great. So great firms that are delivering good service should command whatever their published fee schedules are. It should adhere to them. Last point on the ultra high net worth on pricing. I don't believe an asset-based price makes sense for great wealth alone. I don't have a problem with it to recover the real cost of delivering the investment solution. But at some point, there are additional assets, let's say above $100 million, that are coming in to accounts in the same entities funding the same strategic asset allocations and there's new money. There's no additional work that the firm is doing. It's really hard to justify an asset-based fee above a particular amount. And just for the record, above $100 million, most people are not investing in long, only, separately managed accounts or 40-act funds. They're usually in limited partnerships around which there's a separate fee structure. But the point is, I believe there should be non-investment fee pricing in addition to the investment-related pricing. I believe in a hybrid model where you can recover some of these really customized non-investment, typically planning service that you're putting forward for the client. And I believe if you don't have visibility around the service rendered, if you don't really present this promise that you're delivering as a value proposition, you won't be able to recover it. But for those people, do it well. They do it legitimately with great staff. They deserve to be compensated for that bottom-up cost that they've embedded to deliver that solution. And so the only way to do that is to do that with a negotiated retainer of some sort and not at an asset-based fee. Those would be the you three items. You, you referenced this demographic shift that the industry is undergoing. I think there's been a lot. Me personally, there's been a lot of talk about it for the last 10 years, but I'm actually starting to see it today occurring. Are you bullish or bearish on the level of talent coming into these firms, younger talent on the leadership and management side? Boy, I'm, uh, I'm bullish, uh, but I guess I'm an optimist. But history has not been particularly kind to our industry as the demand, for instance, for the RAA has taken off. 
And as great wealth is created with greater complexity, there's no question there's not enough people that can, using my term, that can carry the dialogue. Well, first of all, the dialogue is impossible for any one person to carry anymore. The complexity has outstripped the ability of anybody to carry the dialogue. And so first and foremost on the staff law, I believe in an ensemble. I believe in a team, a team approach for lots of reasons, pushing down work that's more administrative uh, to a lower compensated, a, a rising generation of people is good for lots of reasons. It's, it's good training and applied experience base, but it also just makes a lot of economic sense to push greater client judgments. That's the counseling function up to the highest senior role. So you can expand and stretch the load management for those people that will allow the firm to maintain its profitability. Uh, but talent as a general theme is a tricky thing. Broadly, we in the wealth management industry, forgive me, have been a stepchild in what I would call the broader finance and asset management industries or go to the academy and the schools that are generating degree candidates in the liberal arts schools, they don't teach anything about uh, what we would call financial planning. There are some that do it, but certainly the elite liberal arts schools put their nose up as if that's not something you should be studying, it's a vocation. And then in the graduate school level, there's a tilt to what I would call finance, capital markets, corporate finance, and out of those degree programs at the elite schools uh, come people that are bankers uh, moving into corporate finance. Why, by the way? Why? Because that's where the money is. That's where there have been highly rewarded early stage roles for building one's career and getting into a variety of what I would call commercial and investment banking functions. So we've been a stepchild. We've been finding people that have come through that path that come into our industry. But I think generally, generally, uh, people, whether they're in, in innately or socialized to it, those people are in the transaction business. Let me go back to my point. Demand favors counseling. Demand favors individuals who uh, have different innate attributes. And we need to combine the learned competencies one can get in either school through the academy, graduate schools included, or through credentialing that our industry will provide them. We need to combine the competencies which are learned with those innate attributes, make individuals more rather than less adaptable to doing the counseling role that clients need on the investment and non-investment side. Again, the investment side may allow somebody to be more in the traditional uh, finance training, more able, but to really deliver solutions to private clients with all of the other complex needs they have, one needs to carry a broader dialogue. And I think it appeals to a different with the person with a very different innate attribute or set of characteristics. Finding those people has been, been a real challenge, but there are programs that are emerging I'm on the advisory council at Columbia where they have a new master's program in wealth management. I know the Ultra High Net Worth Institute is contemplating doing some specific training and credentialing. I think there's some things happening, but it's remarkably late in the cycle of great wealth. So there's a huge talent shortage. Last point, the only fix here 
the only fix is to train, to bring people into the firm and give them the ability to grow and learn and learning cultures. Firms that are dedicated to the develop, professional development of their people will succeed the most, giving people an opportunity to be in client-facing roles, paying for them to have training and development programs. I'm convinced the only way we can build this generation that's needed is to breed them. I'm an undergraduate degree in history. I, I liken it to the, to the puppy, the pre-Reformation or post-Reformation guild. Uh, you know, they had great glass blowers and furniture makers and mill workers and all the, uh, the Cooper Smiths and all those people, those, those guilds, uh, stood for excellence. And so the apprentice journeyman master process needs to be applied to our industry. I believe it's very applicable today. There's a big talent mismatch, Brian. Fascinating commentary. And I really applaud your uh, approach. I think the more that I interact with families and the, the lessons learned from our own family, I think many times they would be better served by just having an empathetic, intelligent therapist then they wouldn't necessarily having an investment guru working with them, honestly. So um, I do think it, it certainly is a ensemble approach. This has been terrific. I want to thank you for the time. If people are interested in engaging with you, obviously Ultra High Net Worth Institute is a terrific resource. I've connected with a number of people there. You have unbelievable collateral on the site, but if they want to learn more about your focus and the work you're doing, what's the best way for them to Get connected My website, you. Brian, is, is uh, www.jhmclaughlin.com. I thank you for mentioning the Institute. I think the Institute is really organized as a resource center of library of, the, of the nature. Now, obviously, we have podcasts and videos, so it's not just uh, written material. There's a lot of resources there and our programming as well. But those are two areas that I would commend people to, to go to find organization. And the Institute is UHN winstitute.org. And, and a final question I'd like to ask folks, especially people that are highly productive, like you are, like you have multiple hats, right? The firm, the institute, all the work you do, et cetera. What's a daily practice that you found can bring you peace and, and, and balance considering all the hats that you're wearing? Well, that's a great question. And I have another hat on the New York chapter leader for something called R360 Global, which deals with centimillionaires. We just had a session on Wednesday and it was focused on intellectual capital. And I can't say this more uh, with more energy, but with more vigor. I believe uh, I'm on a flight tomorrow morning out to California. I've got a lineup of stuff to read. It's, I put it on my calendar as a learning opportunity. I'm just constantly reading everything I can get my hands on. And I'm hopefully not wasting my time reading stuff that I shouldn't be reading, but there's so much great content available today, whether it's in podcasts or in other places. And if you're not keeping up with what's happening, you're falling behind. So I'm constantly, constantly learning. I think that's the best practice. I spend People are always astounded by this. I spend two hours of every day in something that's basically reading and learning every day. And that's including Saturday and Sunday. I'm just motivated. I, I'm, I, I feel we're going through a remarkable time in the industry. I'm, uh, I have a modest role in it. I want to I stay in, in, engaged. 
So I think the best practice for everyone is to learn. And when you're learning, you're stimulated to do more. You're forced to be more efficient per se, but there needs to be space for learning or you're, you're falling behind. But it's wonderful and, and admirable that you have that type of discipline around that your time spent on, on continuing education. Jamie, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It's terrific. For our listeners, please leave us a, a review. Let's know the favorite part of today's episode. And Jamie, we'll have to do a second round because we didn't cover half the questions that I had laid out, but we're running up against the clock. But I want to thank you again for the time and, and very much encourage people to reach out and learn more about all the work you're doing within this area. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.